Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain. Once more, I'm joining Peter Hart at Shea Hart. Uh, and today, Pete, very special day. I don't know if you can remember this far back, given your great age, but um, our very first podcast was the South Knots Hussars. Who and that they? led to a series of podcasts, which, uh, because of the age, unfortunately, they're no longer on uh, Spotify and Apple, but you can get them still on YouTube. Pete and Gary's Military Street, YouTube. And uh, uh, today's podcast is, is going to be talking about the South Knots Hussars after the war. And uh, this is their rebirth, as it were. Ooh. Yeah, um, th- th- this is quite. Uh, this is based on a project that we did. At, uh, I did at the War Museum, uh, and the idea was to chart um, a, a regiment, a territorial regiment, and 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 what we were trying to get the idea of. Although people joke about Saturday night soldiers, although people joke about a drinking club, although people joke about a lot of things, there's a real a reality behind it in that they were actually Cold War warriors, weren't they? In in their own way, uh, and also it charts an extremely interesting phase in the British Army when it goes from being an army to being what it is now, which is a defence force. Technically, it's not an army at all. Um, yeah, I mean, I was a, a Cold War warrior. But, but interestingly, I think at this time, just after the war, uh, the Soviet Union wasn't seen as the big threat because they'd recently been allies. So I, I, I think this is going to be an interesting tale of how the British Army changed from 1945 onwards. Now, one thing you'll notice, dear listener, is that uh, early Listeners, on... Oh, sorry. Well, I'm thinking. <laughs> We're in trouble if he's one. Is is that is that a lot of the early voices are officers? Now, why that? Why might that be for a project recorded uh, in the 1990s about people in the 1950s? Because we're covering the 50s today. Well, why why do you think that might be? Well, I think one of the reasons is that the the working class lads, as it were. Ah. Uh, weren't uh, weren't being recruited into the army at that time, and um, everybody had been demobbed. Yeah, but even more so is the fact that if you were a working class lad in 1950 working in heavy industry, you were dead. You were dead when we came to record them because we didn't record them in the 80s like we did the South Not Desire. These were done very late on in the 1990s and. 2000s. Well, had I known that, I might have thought they'd be dead. <laughs> 
<laughs> the thought looking at yourself, you'd realise that people don't live forever. Moving swiftly on. So, as a fighting regiment in the Second World War, the South Nazis' yeomanry uh, certainly had a notable career, didn't they, Pete? They did, they did. Uh, I think, uh, is it a Chinese curse? May you live in interesting times. Well, they certainly lived in interesting times. Too bloody interesting. Uh, Shall we go through that very yeah, let's, quickly? Let's do a very you can listen to the podcast. Recap. There's about 40 bloody podcasts on it. Uh, um, they, they started the first line unit, which is what we're dealing with uh, uh, again. The poor old second line unit we never mentioned. The first line unit started in 39 with 18 pounders. They were 106. Seven Field Regiment Royal Artillery. Which batteries, Barry? Gary? Barry? Barry? Gary, Gary, Barry, Gary. Who's Barry? Barry. What well, Barry? Barry North. Barry. I must pay tribute to Barry North, who supported us throughout this. Um, I think you're referring to 425 and 426 batteries. And where did they go first? Oh, yeah, they went out to Palestine, didn't they, via a very circuitous route, I seem to remember, in 1940. Yeah. Then they were, uh, we've got to make this quick. They fought all the way across North Africa. They were re-equipped with 25 pounders. They were caught up in the siege of Tobruk. Oh, my God, I remember that. That was about three episodes. That, whoa, what a story that was. Uh, after the breakout from uh, Tobruk, they were reorganized. And what was the number? I bet you can't remember this of the new battery they added. Uh, 520. Ah, the reading skills are still well up to <laughs> Notes are a wonderful thing, aren't they? They yeah. were added to their strength. Now, and, and I remember this, this was a, a, a horrific experience for them. The tragedy struck at the Battle of Knightsbridge on the 6th of June 1942. So, in effect, they were overrun and they briefly ceased to exist as a unit. Oh, but that doesn't last long. So they, uh, they reformed first as a battery. Uh, that's cobbled together from the few that survive. Uh, and uh, it's it, 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 it's exciting because they're re-equipped with 5.5-inch guns. Is that bigger than the 25-pounder? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good gun for the time. As uh, our friend Bulent would say, it's Bjork. Bjork, Turkish for big. And they returned to the fray as part of the 7th Medium Regiment, which was a, a regular regiment, wasn't which it? Which is strange because yeah. they're territorials, but yeah. Uh, they then, they're in all the North African campaigns from then on, advancing from Egypt, Battle of El Alamein, through, uh, all through uh, Libya into Tunisia. It's, in it, fact, you could have said just across North Africa. Oh, I could have said that. It's uh, big, isn't it? Yeah, before jumping across to Sicily. Holidays? Yes, and then finally returning to England in late 1943. Where? Now, they're a county regiment, aren't they? And, and the, the, the people who are the commanding officers are bigwigs in, in Nottinghamshire, and uh, they exert all their in, in influence. And what do they manage to achieve? Well, they, they want to return to the status of a full regiment, and they duly secured agreement for reformation as a 107 medium regiment consisting of, imaginatively, 425 and 426 batteries. And when is that? March 1944. Right. So then, from then on, and I will... Follow your advice. In March, in, in July 44, they join the evading forces in, in Normandy. Uh, they arrive a month after D-Day and uh, drive, drive or fight their way through the whole of Northwest Europe to finish up in... Uh, that's a fantastic story. You remember all that. And they finish up in Germany and there they're formally disbanded in February 1946. Well, <clears throat> what a story that was. And uh, that was 80 million episodes of Pete and Gary's Military, wasn't it? Yeah, you're slightly exaggerating. Exaggerating. Not sure you're. Now, the South, South Nazis, they weren't left dormant, weren't they, in their uh, metaphorical tents for long? 
Oh. Are you thinking of Achilles? Oh, yeah. I always think of Achilles. Yeah. Now, when the smoke clouds thrown up by the Second World War had begun to clear and the shape of post-war Europe was emerging, it was apparent that whatever the defeat of Hitler had achieved, it certainly hadn't created a world f- free from the threat of war. Like we have now. Yes, yes that's very true. <laughs> Now, it was decided to reform the Territorial Army, planned to eventually provide six infantry divisions, two armoured divisions and one airborne division. That's uh, a bit bigger than the current British Army, isn't it? Uh, I mean, well, sorry, when I say British Army, I mean British Defence Force, it's not an army. Now, this, how many, just just have a guess how many artillery regiments will be required in that? One, two, three, lots. Yeah, about 300. So the three was nearer the right one. Uh, and they, they would be organised on the tried and tested county regimental status. So as a result, the first and second line units uh, of the South North Sars are, 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 are going to be reformed. 107 Regiment, that's who had been finished their war, was reborn as 307 Field Regiment. And guess what the batteries were? 425 and 46. Got it. And they were re-equipped with Ram Sexton self-propelled 25-pounder guns. So back to the future for them. Uh, the other, the second line, let's just mention uh, 150 regiment. That's going to be 350 heavy regiment. They get 7.2 howitzers. And that's the last thing we'll ever say about them. Uh, they, uh, we had to prioritise in doing the interviews. And they, were, uh, funnily enough, their regimental association, their side of it, wasn't interested. So we weren't. <laughs> Now, now, in the first instance, they were only going to recruit about a quarter of the men needed for the regiment, but to get themselves ready as a trained carder for the planned influx of national servicemen, whom it was planned would have a duty to complete four years territorial service with a local unit once they'd served their then 18 months in the regular army. So this is just, as you say, a carder. So they were, this is to base the future on, yeah. So uh, who's going to command it? Is it, uh, is it done entirely on merit? Uh, uh, well, actually, that's unfair because he's a well-known officer. So, but yeah, I mean, gliding past that, it was actually uh, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Sir William Barber, who'd commanded four two six battery during the desert campaigns of nineteen forty forty two. So, it, he, you know, he was. He was an old school officer, wasn't he? Um, yeah, I think what you're referring to was his family were wealthy colliery landowners whose history for years had been closely entwined with the regiment. Yeah, the barbers had commanded in the First World War, batteries in the First World War as well. Now, uh, now the, the open recruitment in May 1947, and uh, who would be the first batch, in your view, to be to volunteer and, and more importantly, perhaps to be accepted? Well, it, it attracted uh, uh, Second World War veterans, men who'd been delighted to return safe and sound to their families and the re- relative freedoms of civilian life after the long years of the war. <laughs> Hang on, that's a bit contradicting. So, so why were they so keen to join? Why did they rejoin? Well, well, you could say it was despite themselves. I mean, there were some advantages to it, wasn't there? And, and we'll come on to some of the attractions. Well, let's talk about one. You might remember him from the podcast's earlier podcast, Captain Charles Westlake of 307 Regiment. What did he say? A little over a year after my demob, I was back in the South, not Cesar's. I've often wondered what made me rejoin after spending six and a half years full-time with the army. And while I've not come up with any clear-cut reason, I feel it was something to do with comradeship. Changing out of uniform for the last time and putting on my demob suit for the first time, I found I was very much like a fish out of water. So he missed it. He missed it. I can, I can understand that. Yeah, well, you've still got links with your old comrades, haven't you? 
Yeah. Now, back in uniform,、uh, they were going to be equipped with this Sexton 25 pounder. That's very different from the mighty 5.5 inch guns throwing a hundred pound shell that they'd got used to in the closing years of the war. And what does Westlake, a captain, he's very quickly, by the way, Gary, promoted to major.、Uh, what, did, what did Westlake say about that? We were equipped with the Ram Sexton self propelled gun, which was a Sherman tank with its top cut off and fitted with a 25 pounder gun. This gave the gun a somewhat limited traverse, so that if a big switch was ordered, instead of the number one moving the trail over the required number of degrees, the driver swivelled the whole tank on its tracks. This required quite a bit of practice between the number one, the driver, and the layer, but at least no physical effort was required, and running up was a thing of the past. For those of us who had spent the best part of two years with a 5.5 inch gun and its 100 pound shell, the 25 pounder seemed a bit of a pipsqueak. Now,、um, the man in charge, William Barber, he, he tries to recruit the best men. And it, it's not only South Nazis he recruits. So he's looking for the best of the returning officers, the veterans. And, and one of them is, and I remember him well,、uh, he was still alive when I interviewed him. He would have been difficult to interview if he'd been dead. And was- not working class then. Because they'd all died, as you said. No, <laughs> Major Arthur Warburton.、Uh, now he'd, he'd, he'd served in the Royal Artillery, not with the South Artillery in Northwest Europe, and he's given command the four-two-five battery. What was Warburton like? You've never met him, but you've, you've heard the interviews or bits. And what do you think he was like? Well, he had very high standards, and he's not impressed by some of the existing officers. His criticisms were particularly aimed at some of the few surviving pre-war officers and those wartime veterans commissioned with the minimal formal gunnery training. Well, that's people like Westlake in part. He might have been aiming at. Although I thought Westlake was an excellent officer. This is what Arthur Warburton of Fort Commanding Forty Five Battery says. I wasn't always sure that their officers were up to RHA standard, Royal Horse Artillery. I think things moved a bit too quickly in a self-propelled regiment for a lot of the traditional gunnery officers. Gunner officers, sorry, they were just. Too slow. They were perfectly all right in a towed gun regiment. I think where they all suffered was that the old TA people had never been really trained. They didn't appear to do anything or know anything, and it appeared to be just an excuse to drink beer. That was it. What's wrong with that? <laughs> oh, I don't understand the point he's making. No, no, it, it's evaded me a bit. As a carder, they were short of numbers. Short of trained personnel on the new sextons, and short of equipment of every kind. Oh, and of course they were.、Uh, but they did what they could, didn't they? So they, their first camp was at Otterburn Camp uh, in uh, in 1949. That's Reedsdale, and my Polly family cottage is just by there, just by it. She often used to gallivant with soldiers, I expect, on the moors. Moving swiftly on, she never listens to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> they were at Otterburn Camp in 1949, where they were revisiting the firing range on which the battery had regularly practiced in the pre-war era. Now, they're, they're, in a sense, they're just well hanging fire to use an artillery expression.、Uh, well, they're just waiting for the influx of national servicemen, but that's going to be a while, isn't it? Because they've got to wait for them to finish their. They've、term. got to do their service.、Yeah. In 1949, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Birkin. 
We've heard of him. Uh, yeah. He took over the command of 307 Regiment. So he takes over from uh, from Barber. Uh, now, what Bur- Birkin's a big hero of ours, wasn't he? He was. A, a he featured a lot in the podcast. He had had an exceptionally distinguished war uh, and uh, sorry, war record, uh, and he'd commanded 425. Battery during the war in the Western Desert. So he was the other one with Barber in four two six originally. So yeah, uh, is is he uh, is he an ordinary working class lad? No, because he'd be dead. We've established that. <laughs> he also belonged he, to a family. He, he is dead and was dead. <laughs> he also belonged to a family which looked on the South not as ours, which more or less is their sort of family regiment. You know, almost a, a, a plaything of the family. Now, Birkin was, he was a good gunner. He was a great observation officer. But his place in the story is really in recruitment. And what was he really looking for? And I don't want any sniggering. <laughs> well, he was he was on a quest for plentiful young officers of the right type. Men with the brains to be good gunners, the toughness to withstand life in the field, and, of course, underpinning everything the style required from an officer and a gentleman. So he's not looking in working man's clubs, uh, although perhaps he should have been, but he's he's looking for the right type, isn't he? So this is the old school still. Um, who would be responsible for the recruitment of NCOs and gunners? Would that, that wouldn't be Burke, Well, would that it? would be mainly the responsibility of the battery commanders, their battery sergeant majors and senior NCOs. Full recruitment was naturally the aim, but this was by no means easy in a world that had been literally and metaphorically, oh, you know, yeah, like all the right. Look, I can see you taking by it war. <laughs> And this is, this is once more made, now Major Arthur Warburton of 425 Battery. When you were in the Army, did you get this sort of rapid promotion? Often. Followed by? Rapid demotion. <laughs> um, Arthur said, oh, personal friend, of course, says this, recruiting was very difficult. A lot of people thought they hadn't had enough. And it wasn't really fashionable to be in the Territorial Army then. But things improved as time went by. And the best recruiting thing is your own recruits. It rather snowballs. The more people you get, the more you get because they bring their friends in. We got what came. We didn't specialise in office people or works people or any particular people. We just recruited anybody we could and fitted them into a slot. And much as the army has always done and will do. Now, uh, so what, what happens at a drill night? Oh, perhaps you'll explain what a drill night is for us? Well, it, it, it clues in the name. It, it basically concentrates on basic training as the officers and NCOs sought to bring the men and themselves up to scratch on the self-propelled guns. Now, that's because they're a, an artillery uh, regiment. So they're, they're doing drill on the guns. So, so if you think about it, it's uh, they probably did it by numbers. They and, did. And, it, and it would be orchestrated and every man would have a role. That's it. And we will actually come on to that when we finally get somebody who's working class and lived in the 1990s. Um, it's, um, now, how does this, uh, how does it, now, they use competition as ever. That, well, the army always does. Well, um, even in your day. Yeah, you, it, you were always in competition to be the best soldier. It's supposed to be a friendly rivalry to raise standards, and it often descends into something far worse than that. Now, uh, so they're waiting for, uh, in 1950, they're long expected, uh, it becomes part of the National Service Liability to join a TA unit for four years following their release from uh, the regular army. And at a stroke in the 50s, the situation changes, doesn't it? And this is what Major Arthur Warburton says. 
When the National Service came along, that was a tremendous help because they all did a certain time in the TA afterwards. On the whole, they were extremely good, although they all grumbled. No, I can't believe that, can you, Gary? About having to do National Service. I never heard one single man say that it hadn't been the best thing that had happened to him. They were a very great asset to the regiment. It illustrated the difference between the traditional TA, where the fellow comes off the streets and doesn't know how to march, compared with a national service recruit who is a trained so- soldier. And this that's is a good, good point. That's, that's a, good a very point. good point. Do you think uh, every single man in his regiment who did national service and came on to him said it was the best thing that ever happened to him? No, not at all. Uh, but I can believe that they observed occasionally about their national uh, service. Now, interestingly, in 1950, they also extended the period from 18 months to two years. So they would have been... The regular service, yeah. yeah. So they would have Why been... Why was that? There were things going on in the world, I suppose. I think it's Korean War, isn't it? Yeah. Right about then. But they would have been pretty well trained. So that's so. what about Birkin and his quest to find eligible young officers? Well, one, one of Birkin's most fruitful sources of officers was the Nottingham... <laughs> Sorry, the Nottingham Rugby Club. Which, by the way, had been one, one of the biggest things before the war. He's a big rugby fan. He well. was well aware of the concept of peer group pressure and knew that if he could get just one popular young chap to join, then his friends would often form a procession into the regiment. Now, this is why in the Douglas Haig Fellowship, we uh, always mention that you're a member. Yeah. And people, have, they've come from all over the country to join the Douglas Haig Fellowship. Apply to Pete and Gary's Military History if you wish to join us. Anyway, uh, moving on from that. Several of the officers found that the social values of the officers' mess had much in common with the rugby clubs, uh, with which so many of them were all too familiar. Peter Birkin himself had a legendary appetite for alcohol. <laughs> alcohol and many of the officers willingly followed his example and this is what second lieutenant peter featherby of 425 battery says i've seen the south not suzar sit down to a guest night at camp and at the end of the night a number couldn't get off their chairs i found a number of drunken officers on the floor they were a fairly hard drinking crowd in the early 50s I don't think it was seen as a problem. There was an accepted attitude to drinking that it was a good thing to get pissed on dining in nights at camp. There was a lot of drinking done by most of the officers. It was like a gigantic club. A young officer would be encouraged to drink, but it wouldn't be made the subject of bullying. Peter Birkin said to me one day, I don't mind how much you get drunk at night, but if you're not on parade in the morning, that's not good enough. That was his attitude. There were some hangovers taken out to fire the guns as well. That must have been good, the guns going bang. <laughs> yeah, anyway, um, uh, is other, other South, right, other South Nazis unique in this? Let's, let's, let's defend the regiment now. Is this a unique situation in the TA? For the South Nazis, well, the short answer is no. It, it was a, a common problem shared across many of the territorial army regiments, the length and breadth of the country. Yeah, no, and this is not a disrespect to them. It's just how it was, and and it's young men enjoying themselves as well. Yeah, I mean, you could argue there was a similar culture in the nineteen seventies and eighties when I was in. We did, you know, Ryan Darling particularly uh, Friday night through the weekend was was you know the time for the Russians to invade. Frankly. Now, um, oh, I uh, hope no Russians are listening to this. Uh, yeah. 
Now, <laughs> they're lining up on the border again. Now, a further string to the South Knots Hazar's metaphorical bow. Blimey, I mean, it's that, it's, is that a local product in Nottinghamshire? Is, is it sponsored by metaphorical bows or something? Is there historical relationship with the 1st Regiment Royal Horse Artillery? Now, where does that orig- originate from? You remember this, Gary. Well, that's from Tobruk, isn't it? The defence of Tobruk. The two were side by side, and they were a good part of the artillery defences. Uh, and uh, why is it important? What's important about the 1st RHA? I think the, the clue's in the title. Well, the, they're the first... Now, the relationship between the two regiments robustly endured across half a century. It would provide a powerful source of influence high in the echelons of the Royal Artillery, because they're the first, uh, whenever the future of the South Nazis was called into question. Which is this podcast series we'll reveal was frequently... (laughs) Now, uh, 1952, the annual camp was at Westdown. That's uh, on Salisbury Plain. and probably still going, knowing the of the army. Um, and the government... Uh, that, that was where in the first podcast I, I mentioned buggery, wasn't it? Yes, but no, <laughs> I don't know. For the very first time. One of the time. only cuts Matt made. He wasn't used to you at the time. Now, the uh, the government uh, had uh, been worried. The, the Korean War had showed up the weaknesses in our reserve, our regular army, everything. So they wanted a test mobilisation. And who should they call up? Gary, who what, who was aimed at by the Re- Z reserve scheme? Who are these Z reservists? Well, it was they were trying to recall the uh, the, the the men demobilised after the end of the Second World War. That included the uh, the territorial army, of course. The South Notsuzars also found it somewhat difficult to cope suddenly with this vast influx of uh, somewhat disgruntled ex-soldiers. Would you be disgruntled if you were recalled to the colours now? <laughs> I think they'd be disgruntled. No, you're 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 still worthwhile. Now, um, the, 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 even if they could be given worthwhile jobs, there's a problem. What's the problem? Well, you've got to carry them out, haven't you? And this is what Lieutenant James Gunn of 426 Battery says. I was a command post officer and, and unfortunately 426 Battery lost the shooting cup because there was an error down the signals and somebody left at 15 degrees instead of left 15 minutes. Oh, that, that, that degrees are smaller than minutes. Uh, the safety officer, a Z reservist, was asleep. And the round went off and bounced not very far from the vedette outside Westdown Camp. And rightly, that lost us a shooting cup. But it was very frustrating as we were actually doing rather well. And I was thoroughly enjoying myself in controlling the fire from the command post. Good old uh, James Gunn. Now, uh, this experimental recall of the Z reservists was not to be <laughs> repeated. And the reluctant soldiers were finally left in peace. Yeah, I interviewed a lot of those Z reservists who came back. Not not for the South, not to us. That would have been too much of a coincidence. They were not happy. Anyway, uh, meanwhile, uh, Peter Birkin, he's got a big, he, he's got a new scheme to get lots of eligible young officers. What is it? Well, he he wanted them to 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 value. Uh, sorry, to enlist into the South Knots Hussars. His idea was simple. He'd target the best young national servicemen before they were called up. This is genius. So you get his hooks into them. So <laughs> That's an interesting way of putting it, but yes. So what does John Robinson, he, he's at this point, a civilian. a civilian. What does he say? I received this phone call from Colonel Birkin. He would very much like to have a chat with me ahead of my national service. And would I go round to his office? Eventually, I filed into his office, a huge desk and so on. I was quite nervous. I don't know why, but I was. 
He generally questioned me about what I'd done at school and combined cadet force. And he said, it's very important that you think of your TA service after your national service. And you must view your national service as your basic training for the Territorial Army. He was quite a strong character. He was indeed. What a character he was. I wonder why he was nervous. Um, now, but it, it, you, you, they also signed them on formally as young gunners with 307 Regiment, which then ensured that when they were called up, they'd be assigned to the Royal Artillery, which, by the way, avoids young officer types like John Robinson being sent to the infantry, which is harder work. Um, it also meant subsequently on completing the national service, they'd then go to the South Knots Hussars. Brilliant. And, you know, this is one thing about Peter Birkin. He was a brilliant officer. Now, uh, there's a change in command uh, 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 from Peter Birkin to uh, to somebody else. And it, it's obvious who it's going to be. It's Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Warburton. He takes over command in November 53. They're basically doing two years, which is right, yeah. And another uh, promotion for him. And yes, indeed. He's rocketing up, Gary. Not much akin to your uh, promotion after you left the army. Yes, uh, he was a forceful officer and he would brook no nonsense. So he was determined to establish the highest standards throughout his unit. Warburton was also desperately keen to improve the quality of the men's training. He considered Ottoman camp totally unsuitable for training in what was meant to be a highly mobile unit. And this is Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Warburton, HQ 307 Regiment. I very soon discovered that Otterburn was not really a suitable place for self-propelled guns. The ground is much too soft and they kept getting bogged in. The whole point of self-propelled guns is that you can move across country and get into action quickly. And that was the sort of training we were trying to get. I had a frightful argument with them, that's higher authorities, because we were always having to get somebody to winch these things out of the bogs. And he said, oh, it's good training. I said, we haven't come here to practice winch drill. We can do that at home. We've come to fire the guns and we can't fire the damn things when they're stuck in these bogs. And as a result, he was successful. He had influence. He was a man of influence. And he got the annual camp switched to the rolling downs uh, Charles Rue Plain. And now, while we think about things like this and excitement, uh, uh, let's have a short break. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, many of the young soldiers coming to the regiment in the mid-1950s were part of the long-term harvest of, the, of the, that work done by Peter Birkin, who wooed all these young officers, perhaps the wrong word, uh, and, and got them interested. Um, he, he was just such a fabulous character, uh, Peter Birkin. And this is what uh, Second Lieutenant John Keyes, who was, who was brought back to serve with 426 Battery 307 Regiment. Now, he'd served in Korea. He was a good young officer. What did he say? In those days, most of them were national service doing their reserve service as I was. Again, highly trained because they'd come from regular regiments as I had. Without national service, well, it would have been a totally different outfit altogether. There were hardly any true volunteers. All the TA units had this vast number of recruits, unquote, just walking in the door, staying for three years and maybe staying longer, but not walking out for less than three years. Yeah. Now, they, these, they, they, these regulars, they, they, they'd fall into the TA routine, wouldn't they? Drill night once a week, uh, weekend training, pretty often. Um, but it's a different world in the 1950s. And uh, what, what, what does the average working class chap have to do? Well, I think at that time it was a full five days and often a half day on the Saturday. I remember my dad working five and a half days, definitely. Um, now, um, th- what about at weekends? What did they do at the weekends? Uh, well, they drive out to Ollerton where they were engaged. That's, that's a suburb of Nottingham, yeah. I've never heard of it, actually where they'd be engaged in the gunnery training. Now, for Lieutenant John Harlow, who'd spent his time serving with the 1st Regiment Royal Horse Artillery in Germany, impressive, the level of gunnery skills didn't bear much comparison with the senior regiment. And this is Lieutenant John Harlow, 426 Battery. Laying out the gun position, coming into action, engaging imaginary targets, coming out of action, moving to another position and getting into action. It was practising so that everyone from the battery commander down to the lowliest gunner knew how to perform their duties. The South Otters, bless them, were pretty good, but they weren't a patch on the first RHA. Well, I'm sorry, but that's... Why would they be? That's inevitable. That would be a real criticism of the first RHA if they were part-time soldiers as good as the, the elite regiment of the British Army. Now, the young subalterns took to the yeomanry traditions of the South Notsuzars mess with alacrity. You were hoping I wouldn't be able to say that, weren't yeah. you? Now, in the somewhat drab dog days of the 1950s, the pomp and ceremony of a real officer's mess guest night was something to be savoured. And this is, once more, Second Lieutenant John Keyes. It would be very formal. You would be dressed in blues and spurs with the orderly officer with a cross belt. You would sit down to a formal dinner with the usual rounds of drinks, finishing with the pork going round the table. Our regiment was very fond of pork. 
<laughs> it went round not once but twice, but basically till it ran out. Very port-minded. It became almost a tradition that the adjutant had to drink half a pint of port before they were considered that they'd dined out. We generally stuck to the rules where we didn't discuss religion, politics and women. We kept off touchy subjects. We would talk shop. There was no holes barred on that at all. Yeah, because that was in the old regiments, the, 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 you know, the olden days, you weren't allowed to talk shop either, which was always a ludicrous rule. Uh, do we talk about religion, politics and uh, women? Yes. Religion and politics with Pete and Gary. Now, after the port and the guest speeches, the time-honoured games were played in the officers' mess. Now, to the outsider, <laughs> the games might seem a bit childish, but to those involved, they're, they're a glorious drunken revel, of, you know, every chance of a bloody nose to go with a morning hangover. And this is uh, uh, second Lieutenant John Keyes again. Mess rugby was rough. The ball was a cushion, a wrapped-up newspaper, somebody's hat. There was high coccolarum, where two people lie on the ground, grasping the opposition's right shoulder with your left hand and vice versa. So you're lying side by side, but only halfway overlapping. Then you bring your inside leg up, lock it with your opponent, and you're supposed to turn your opponent right over by bringing his leg rather uncomfortably over the top of his head. Then there is Moriarty, where you are blindfolded with a wad of newspaper in your hand and you are lying on the ground holding each other's hand or wrist. You say, are you there, Moriarty? The other guy says, yes. Then you try and hit Moriarty over the head with this wad of newspaper. The trouble is, by the time the blow is struck, Moriarty has pulled himself away and the idiot hits the floor. It's surprising the amount of body movements you can get without actually moving your wrist. It's screamingly funny, especially after a few beers or gins. Now, interestingly, I've played Moriarty. Were you in the officer's mess? No, but we, we didn't use newspapers either. We would use anything to add. I remember using, for example, a sort of rounder's bat on one occasion, which was a disaster. Because <laughs> even if you were caught a glancing blow, it hurt. Had you had uh, uh, We've a few had something beers. to drink, yes. Now, the officers would also sometimes be invited to the sergeant's mess parties. And often there'd be a series of competitive games that could be challenging affairs in every sense of the word. And this is Captain Jim Buxton of 425 Battery. Their ambition was to get you drunk. Excuse me, that's every soldier's ambition when it comes to officers. They used to have a boat race with two teams, young officers versus sergeants. You'd have a trestle table with the officers and sergeants on each side and you'd all have a pint of beer in front of you. You'd start it, drink it, turn it upside down and put it on your head. Then the next one would do it. The two teams would do it simultaneously and the team that finished first won. They had one sergeant who could drink a pint in three swallows, three contractions. Gulp, gulp, gulp. Gone! Almost impossible. One day we beat them and there was a bit of a celebration. <laughs> I wasn't feeling very well next morning. Now, I played that. That's a student game as well. We used to see it. You get wet. Now, you could say they were innocent times, but at the same time, there were underlying threats that caused some of them to mentally underline the importance of what they were doing on their training and at camp uh, beyond the fun and the games. Yeah, and this this is something we want to emphasise. Uh, 
the, the, the TA has a meaning beyond drunken revelries, which uh, are just... A weekend get-togethers, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it is training. And you're going to be Second Lieutenant John Keyes again. During the Suez Crisis, we were jumping around a bit because had it escalated, there was always the possibility that they might have been brought in on some role or other. And I want to make this clear. I mean, do you think those lads before the First World War... I doubt if they thought there was going to be a war. When I enlisted in the 70s, it never occurred to me that there were wars. It just didn't occur to me. So this, these, these young men, we know they weren't called up. Not at this stage. Later in the story, they are. We know they weren't, but they could have been. They could have been. And rather strangely, as I mentioned earlier, the threat, threat from the Soviet Union, that wasn't yet perceived as, as really serious or indeed imminent. And this is Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Warburton. Although the Russian Cold War was on, it didn't really affect us in the least. We certainly didn't envisage being called upon to help in any way. It didn't occur to us at all. Russia had been our ally for three years. And I think this is something that people from later decades forget. The early 50s, Russia was... It was, yes, there was a Cold War on, but it, for many people, it was still their trusted wartime ally. For some of the officers, the social cachet of the yeomanry was rather eroded when they lost their increasingly, increasingly venerable sexton self-propelled guns <laughs> and were re-equipped with 25-pounders in back, November 1956. Back to the future, yeah. So, but this is the thing they'd been equipped with in about 1942, wasn't it? Uh, now, uh, so what does Peter Featherby, Lieutenant Peter Featherby, uh, think of this? Although the sextons had problems, they were jolly good fun and very manoeuvrable. We were very unhappy to see them go. We always thought ourselves to be cavalry as old-fashioned yeomen rather than gunners, and we felt the self-propelled gun was nearer the cavalry role than a towed 25-pounder. Yeah, there's probably more practical voices lurking in the regiment. And here we'll have another quote from somebody who could see the more prosaic benefits of the changeover back, well, back to 20, real 25 pounders. And this is, uh, he, he, he's, he's getting promoted, this chap, Captain James Gunn, 426 battery. Um, and, and he's a real figure. As you, he's a, a voice of sense throughout these podcasts. He says this, personally, I felt relieved because it was difficult to get good drivers of tanks. That's what the self-propelled guns are, in effect, and they were old uh, Shermans. He goes on to say, some of them were a bit split arse. That's a technical term, Gary. One of them turned a tank over, so it made life easier, and we didn't have to bother about tearing up the roads, because those tracks used to just rip the roads up. Now, um, what did the... So, uh, back to the future, we said, so it's the same 25-pounders, and what type of gun towers? Uh, the quad gun towers. That's... Uh, I seem to remember I had problems with that during the podcast. I kept saying gun towers, didn't I? It was our favourite bit of those podcasts. But you have matured in so many ways. And they fought with with these guns uh, in the Western Desert in 1942. Which is 15 years before. Shortly afterwards, in January 1957, the government removed the compulsory element whereby national servicemen had to serve in a local TA unit. Ah, that's going to cause problems, isn't it? Well, it meant that 307 Regiment were once more an all-volunteer unit. Now, let's look at... We've got our first working-class lad hove to, (laughs) finally, at last. This is Gunner John Jackson. And he joined the regiment underage. He was just a young lad of 16 uh, it's 1956, and his motives are typical, uh, I think. So uh, he joined 520 Battery. What does Gunner John Jackson say? If you came on a Wednesday night and a Sunday, you got paid in cash. 
It was quite a lot in 1956, probably more than I was earning at work, and it was quite handy for a 16-year-old lad. It was a good source of income. I think that that was in, uh, an important motivation for a lot of people at that time because there wasn't much money about And that's something to remember. The TA money then and now is important. Yes, they're going to do it for their country. They've got other motives, but one motive is financial. Now, what... <laughs> They, they're on the 25 pounders. The, the men who fought at Knightsbridge, Battle of Knightsbridge, uh, the 6th of June, 1942, they, they, they'd have recognised the gun drill that was taught John Jackson at Bulwell. What does John say? Everybody, no matter what you were going to end up as, had to be reasonably proficient on the 25 pounder. It was a big piece of kit and a, and a big toy to play with. The number one was the sergeant in charge of the gun. The number two was the rammer. The number three was the layer who sat on a seat on the left-hand side. He had to listen to the orders coming from the command post, listen to the number one's orders, and actually work the dials on the site, and look through the site to aim the gun. He had to do everything. <laughs> you were waiting for that, weren't you? Now, behind him was the number four, the ammunition man, who actually loaded the shell into the breach. The number five got the ammunition out of the trailer, and the number six was the driver. Now, so they learned the basics, probably in a drill hall. Well, they did. And then what would they do? Well, they practised dropping the guns and limbers into action in gun positions during the weekend training sessions at Ollerton, and then again at the annual camps. Endless, endless practice, yeah? Uh, yeah, but end, endless practice, slowly, the men are, are actually welded into a team. It's all about being teamwork. You know, you've got to rely on the guy doing his job. So lots of training. What about firing the bangy things? That that would uh, that would uh, raise the pulse of any gunner, wouldn't it? Yes, and this is what gunner John Jackson's of 520 battery says. It was exciting. You've been looking forward to these guns going bang! And you couldn't imagine what noise it made. They advise you to open your mouth so that when the pressure goes into your ears, it will come out. You were given two big wads of cotton wool to stuff in your ears. That was it. The first time the gun I was on fired, I was the number three. I was sitting down looking through the sight with my hand on the firing lever. The number one shouted, Bah! I pulled the firing lever. The gun went, Bang! And it shot me off the seat. As the gun jumped back, it literally threw me off the seat. The noise is horrendous. The pressure, you can't really describe it. You've got the shell going out to the front and you've got the kinetic energy pushing that out and at the same time pushing the barrel back. Lots of energy reacting against you, who are only skin and bone, no more than a foot away from this. Of course, everybody laughed because the new young lad always ends up in a big heap on the floor. Yeah, they all get used to it, sort of move with the gun in the end. It's, uh, But, uh, yeah, great. Now, 1958, time for a new colonel by my calculation. So who comes in this time? Well, it's his long-standing second-in-command, Lieutenant Colonel Foreman Hardy, and he was to command the unit from 1958 until 1962. That's a longer stretch. When I was finally alive and in this world. That's very exciting. I'm sure Foreman Hardy was, uh, would count you as one of his sons and heirs. Uh, he was extremely wealthy. Uh, he was a county family, a uh, businessman, very busy. Uh, so who do you think, uh, who do you think does most of the work? And this is, cr this is a little harsh, but. Well, you can sort of understand in those circumstances that it's likely to have been his 2IC, Major James Gunn. He's got promoted again. <laughs> again, who brought a real vigour to the team at regimental headquarters. He really was a live wire, was James Gunn. 
Uh, yeah, but he was keen to improve the standards of gunnery, and he had one really simple idea, and this is what Major James Gunn of Headquarters 307 Regiment says. As second in command, the most important thing I did about training was to say that a number one on the gun had to pass a test before he was made a sergeant. It stopped people who didn't know their stuff. And secondly, but secondly and much more importantly, it gave those who got there a great feeling of achievement. So uh, that's uh, that's definitely morale. Uh. Yeah, I can think of a negative to it, and I think we might come on to that. Opposition inevitably arose when popular long-standing figures, educationally incapable of passing their qualifications, were exposed by this ruling and gradually removed or replaced. Yes, uh, well, this is... But you've got to have the right people in the right role with the right level of uh, Just because you're popular. I mean, it is a military unit, and if you don't have the education to pass the exams, you're probably going to have to go in a real world. Uh, um, now, uh, another figure's moving through the ranks uh, uh, completely differently from what you did, Gary. By 1958, Peter Featherby, who started off as a second lieutenant, he's, uh, what rank is he then? Well, he's now uh, a major and he's in command of 425 Battery, where his main responsibility was recruitment. What did he say? Well, this is now Major Peter Featherby of 425 Battery. Recruitment was one of your most important functions to get your battery up to strength in order that it would uh, could support six guns. Recruitment and retention was foremost in your mind. One problem the TA always had was the tremendously high turnover, something like 30% a year. So if you could make sure that they enjoyed their soldiering, that wasn't necessarily to make it soft, then they would be retained. You couldn't force anybody to do anything. They were all volunteers. If they enjoyed it, they kept on coming. If they didn't, they just left. Yeah, uh, and and this is this is a, this is if you do any interviews with TA, this is what the the battery commanders are always worried about. Uh, even if the gunners are, uh, are happy at their at their job at their, within the battery, there's no guarantee they'd stay because there's a lot of other things in life. There's a lot of complications uh, because the TA. Well, it's one night a week, plus frequent weekends, plus a couple of weeks in the summer. You know, the the annual camp. Who uh, who might uh, who might get pissed off? Who thinking about our own lives, Gary? Our own lives. Who might get pissed off? Well, it could be the wife, or girlfriend, or children they'd of both, those involved. They'd, they'd all get cross with you. Yes. <laughs> and this is Captain John Robinson. Of Captain John Robinson, of 425 Battery. (laughs) In the TA, each volunteer, whatever his rank, actually has to volunteer every Sunday morning when his wife puts her arm round him in bed and says, Oh, don't go. Don't leave me. He's got to get up, get his uniform on, and come into the TA centre. He's actually got to re volunteer. So unless you've got some pride in the unit and some sense of responsibility to the other people who will be let down if you don't go in, then it's not going to happen. There are two things I noticed about that. One, he could stay with her for the couple of minutes that's all it would be necessary. 
And secondly, and more importantly, this is so true. This is, this is part of the commitment that these men were making in the 50s and 60s, uh, providing part of the, the shield to, uh, to this country against, uh, it might not have been a, it might have been a wobbly shield, but they were providing part of the shield that defended us from outside forces. And by the end of the uh, 50s, in moving into the 60s, the Soviet Union is emerging as a threat. And as you mentioned, they've all got jobs and, and it, it became too onerous for them to consider an extra TA commitment. And some found they were promoted and some were moved to another office or factory far too regularly to travel back. And, and so would be lost to the union. You, you definitely dodged a word that I'd specifically I put in for you. One I can't pronounce either, so I'm going to have to glide by exigencies. Oh, God. <laughs> now, for the officers, there was one cunning way of increasing a young officer's overt commitment to the regiment. What could that be? Well, you're going to tell us what Major James Gunn says. We introduced the officer's mess kit. Cutaway top and buttons. Up to then, our smartest dress had been our blue patrols with chain mail. I was able to simplify the mess kit a bit and make it within the means of the officers. The beauty of that was it cost 400 or 500 pounds. This is in the late 50s. Wow. And by that, the time somebody had decided they would have their mess kit, you knew they were hooked. We looked awfully handsome and everybody else was very, very jealous. That's a lot so, of money. It's a lot of money, but you could see the point. If you could persuade them, get them interested and get them to buy it, then they've spent all that money. I mean, this is the times when a, a, a grand, a grand and a half, I think my dad owned a grand and a half halfway through the 60s, all year. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to think. But my, I think, you know, the average wage was around £20 a week, I think. Yeah, so that, what's 50, 20? It's 1,000. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. So, so it's, uh, this, but then these young men, are not ordinary working-class lads? No. In 1959... Ah, we've got, well, now we've got a working-class lad. <laughs> working-class men. A new regimental sergeant major was posted to the unit when Ron Smith arrived fresh from a stint with 3rd Regiment Royal Horse Artillery. Now, he, he's... Um, what do you think? He arrives, he's come from a, a, a distinguished 3rd uh, RHA. Uh, he arrives, how do you think he, uh, what does he think, Richard? Is he, is he, does he think, wow, this is a fabulous unit, the standards, everything's great. Uh, there are, by the way, we've never mentioned Bullwell. Their, their barracks, uh, their drill hall is at Bullwell, just on to the, uh, the west of uh, Nottingham. Um, it's all so irregular, isn't it? What, so what does Ron Smith say? It's a question of name, what you can do in a TA, as opposed to what you can do in a regular army. The difference, as I saw it, was that as the RSM of a regular regiment, if I said do, someone did it. As an RSM in a TA unit, if I said do, it meant, in a lot of cases, take your jacket off, Ron, and do it yourself. I could have just worn my best uniform, walked round and done nothing except sit on my bum. But I was determined from the start to become involved. Another good soldier, but one who's realistic about what you can do in the TA. Um, uh, um, now, he doesn't take to one of the senior knob officers, if you like. Well, I don't mean knob with a K. I mean knob with an N. I think you're referring to Colonel Foreman Hardy. Yeah, you? and Colonel Foreman Hardy that was actually... You can't criticise a man for being a man of his time, particularly. Um, but there is something Ron doesn't like. What does he say? We were under canvas or sleeping in vehicles. The CO, Colonel Foreman Hardy, was a very rich man, and he turned up with his caravan and his butler. 
Everybody else was pigging it and he was living in luxury. Luxury! I'm just thinking about what his caravan might have been in the 1950s. I'm not sure I'd describe it as luxury. Yeah, but on the other hand, yeah, I understand. Ron Smith, he settles in and he settles down and he enjoys his time in the regiment. Um, And he, he thinks... This is the thing you remember. Even in your day, making a, the, an individual making a difference—it's not just you can make a difference. Uh, but and how does he choose to try and make a difference? Well, he he tries to bring a little more regularity to their training, and this is RSM Ron Smith. I think I did some good. I think their drill became better. I think their dress became more uniform and a little neater than it was. I think I also helped a great deal with the training of those people who wanted to learn more than the normal TA soldier. There was no doubt about it that in certain things such as driving, they were far superior to the regular army because most of their drivers were HGV drivers and been doing that sort of job for years. On gunnery, I would say they were about 25% trained. On the signals, 30% trained. And for the technical assistance, they were something like 50 to 60% fully trained. Now, what? Well, that's that. I think that's a very good point about some of the trades, like driving. But why, why can't they get, why can't they get to regular standards? Why? Why, Gary? Answer me. What? Well, we've mentioned it a number of times. They simply didn't have the time available in the couple of hours on a Wednesday night and the odd weekend to build up their skills. Some of these things you've got to do over and over and over and over again. And what do you call this? Uh, Well, it's like a muscle memory so that you, you... you just keep repeating it. So you do it without thinking. So they get what modern jargon is called skill fade. Uh, uh, I've it, never it, heard of it. No, you wouldn't have, Gary. I've retained all my skills. I was going to exactly say that. You have never suffered from skill fade. You've never really acquired any skills. Now, by the first year, what? <laughs> by the first years of the 1960s, it was obvious to all that James Gunn would succeed Tom Foreman Hardy, and it was typical he should look to the methodology of the commercial and business world so in which he worked. And which you worked. For and inspiration. So and this is Major James Gunn. And you're going to help us understand what he says. He says this, When I discovered I was going to be the commanding officer, I worked out how one could deploy the regiment on a critical path analysis. This was a new idea, a standard business procedure, a way of working out what you have to do in what order so that everything comes together at the right time. Gary, this is your... I was joking. This is your thing. What well, does he still mean? Used. It's still used. We used it at uh, TFL. So... Um, Transport the, for London. The c- critical path analysis identifies those things which, as the term suggests, are critical to the delivery of an action or a part of a project. Because you might have 50 things to do, but only five of them are critical to the success of what you're doing. So if you're going to get delays, it doesn't matter if you're delayed on some of the other things. If you're delayed on the critical path, it has an impact. So what was the critical path analysis on Crossrail? I wasn't involved in Crossrail, so I can't say. Damn! (laughs) No, but that that is a very good explanation. Uh, what might a cynic say? Uh, you were quite a cynical chap at TFL. What might a cynic say about critical path analysis? Well, that it doesn't actually help uh, the, the, the people involved understand what they're doing and why. They just know, I've got to do that bit. But why is all the rest of it necessary? It's necessary. You know, I'm not saying just because it's not critical path, it isn't necessary. But sometimes you glide over that. 
And sometimes it's just bloody common sense that, that some things stand out. But that's not necessarily always, is it? Sometimes there's no. something buried away that, you know... Well, that's the other thing. You can have so many activities that you can't see the wood for the trees. Like if you're going to open Crossrail, you need to dig tunnels. I wouldn't know. I wasn't involved in Crossrail. You do have to dig tunnels. Now, the rise to command of James Gunn marked a new step forward for the unit. I think it does. What, what does it show? Because he's different. We haven't mentioned this before. What's different about James Gunn from Foreman Hardy, Birkin, uh, Birkin and, uh, and uh, Barber? Well, he's, he's not one of the landowning county families who sort of viewed it as a, a matter of hereditary right that they'd get to command the he's regiment. He's a businessman. He's a businessman. Now, the contribution of the Birkins, the Barbers and the Foreman Hardys had been invaluable. So we're not decrying what they've done. But, no, uh, but the 1960s, that's, you know, it's a new age. It's Aquarius. This is the dawning of the, the age, age of, of Aquarius. Aquarius. Yes. And uh, it would mean that merit had more clout than birthright. Now, I'm not sure I totally agree with that. No, it's the start of it, start of it. Uh, I, I agree with your marginal disagreement, if you see what I mean. Now, Gunn himself, he's a wealthy man, uh, but he's a real technocrat. And I think, what would you say he meant when he took over? Well, he certainly meant business. And he took over the regiment in 1962. And, uh, yeah, we can go too far on this. Is 1962 the time that, you know, privilege and things left? No. 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 But it's first inklings, and that I hope you've enjoyed that. I hope you 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 uh, I hope you enjoy this series. We think it's an important series to reflect the work that the TA did, all the TA, not just the South Nuts as ours. And uh, we we we've become very I've become very fond of some of those guys, and some of them for for once are still alive. Not many. Oh. Cheers, Pete. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com. PGMH, or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?